0: I gotta tell you the more challenging and practical and inspiring I find God's word to be in my life. I think especially as I, you know, get to talk to people more and more about where they are with their lives, it's just great. I'm realizing more and more that times are times are making it even more prevalent where God's word has such an impact on people's lives. Um, as an example of just how challenging and practical. Last week we talked about mission. Last week we talked about what it looks like what our mission as followers of Jesus are and we saw that our mission as followers is to proclaim the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. That is our mission. We saw that it was Jesus's mission. We saw that's what he was here for to proclaim the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God while you're here. We saw that it was the apostle Paul's mission to do that. And really, no matter what our age, our occupation, circumstances, personality type, it's our mission too. That is our mission to proclaim the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. And I think importantly, what I got really out of last week that really impacted me was that we saw that the kingdom of heaven is not a place. I always think the kingdom of heaven is the place we're going to go or a place somewhere there. But Luke 17, chapter 20, chapter 7, Luke 17, verses 20 and 21 says, it says, once on being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus said this. He said, the coming of the kingdom of God is not something that can be observed. You can't see it, nor will people say, here it is or there it is, because the kingdom of God is in your midst. Okay, literally the kingdom, what he's saying here is the kingdom of God is within us. It's not a place, it is within us. And as followers of Jesus, we experience God's kingdom now, right now. We don't, we don't have to wait. It's not something, we're, obviously we're waiting for some, and get, to get way incredibly better and wonderful, but we also experience God's kingdom right now. Last week I said this. I said that the kingdom of heaven is God's rule and reign over the entire universe and in the hearts and lives of those to submit to his authority. It's real. I said it's a life. It's what life was meant to look like when he is in charge and it includes transferring our allegiances from the kingdom of this world to God's kingdom, from having ourselves on the throne to having God under the throne. It's living under his direction knowing that he cares for us. Now that is challenging. And it's also inspiring to have a mission that is that huge and that impactful is inspiring. Yet if the kingdom of heaven is something that you and I are called to live, if we're called to proclaim it, it would make sense that we should live our lives in a way that show that we belong to the kingdom of heaven. This is where this is where God's word gets really, really practical, and this is where the words, specifically of the longest sermon that Jesus ever gave, the Sermon on the Mount, gets really, really practical. Here, the Sermon on the Mount was the most. It's probably the most famous sermon that was ever preached that ever Jesus ever gave. It's found in the Gospel of Matthew. It's three chapters long. It's a three chapter long, 111 verses of one sermon. That was a long one, I have a feeling, but it was fantastic. And really, the message of the Sermon on the Mount, I even have it up here, really can be summarized like this. The message can be summarized like how to live a life that is dedicated to and pleasing God from hypocrisy, full of love and grace, full of wisdom and discernment. That really is, you can boil down this three-chapter-long sermon to this. Now that is now that's a practical sermon I would say. That's some practical stuff. In many ways the sermon on the mount what it was was Jesus was responding to the religious leaders of his day who were really they were claiming and they were teaching that keeping really the letter of the law was that's how you would become righteous. It was a means of being seen righteous by God if I just do these things that are written in this book, that are written down, if I do them, I'm good. I mean, really, they believe that their very standing before God was based on their ability to keep God's law to the finest minute detail. I don't want to get into the details, but it's crazy how incredibly minute they would follow these rules and how important they said. And they were good at it. These guys were very good at it. They were the ultimate rule keepers. I mean, they were the the best at keeping rules, at least outwardly they were. Very good at keeping them outwardly. The problem was that as good as they were at keeping these laws outwardly, the reality was that they were really completely missing the point. They were missing the whole point of the law. You see, God's laws or God's commands were always meant to help a person to know when they were falling short. Not to say, do this, do that. No, help us understand where sin is coming in, where we might be falling short. To help a person to be conscious of our sin. To help us see, oh, that's where I'm, not, that's where I'm missing the mark. It also, had God's laws, it revealed God's holy characters. I mean, they're really, God's law and his commands, are. they're really meant, if you need a picture here, they're meant to be like a compass. They're like a compass that help us to stay on course. So that we get, so as best as possible, we are able to live the kind of life that God desires us to live, full of grace, full of joy, full of peace, all this stuff that he wants us to have. Even in the midst of difficult times, we can have that. Now, what Jesus does here with the Sermon on the Mount, he comes along and completely flips flips the tables on the religious leaders' thinking. He just turns it upside down. For them, it was all about keeping the rules without really making any changes in their hearts whatsoever, which was the main point. The main point was to change their heart. And really, I think this is one of the big hang-ups, and I think maybe you might agree with this, but big one of the big hang-ups I see with people that, out in the world that have with Christianity. Really, they focus, instead of seeing, they focus on uh, what, we, what we're really about, they so often see not the nurturing relationship that grows and develops that we have with Jesus that's full of grace and that's full of mercy, but they see just a bunch of rules, a bunch of rules that need to be kept or else you're damned. I think so. You ever met people like that? Sure. Christianity you know, has just a bunch of rules. Okay, if you keep it, great. If not, oof, that's not what it's about. And so Jesus comes along and really tries to throw that whole thinking on its head. It's a great, and he does, this, he does it by talking about so many different topics. This long sermon, it focused on so many different topics. Like, Let me give you a list of some lust, divorce, truth-telling, um, retaliation, loving our enemies, giving to the needy, prayer, anxiousness, judging others, what it meant to be a true kingdom seeker. He talks about all these topics, but actually he is focusing on one theme, one theme through this whole big sermon, and what it it is is how to experience or what experiencing the kingdom of heaven now is really like. How do we experience it now? He's essentially addressing what it's like to experience God's rule, God's reign, and God's presence in our lives. Those three things are the main thing that he wants us under his rule, his reign, and his presence in our daily lives. The Sermon on the Mount isn't about keeping rules and the laws to the finest details. It's about how to have a transformed heart. So here's what I thought I'd do today. What I thought I'd do, we're going through this uh, series, we're coming to the end of it here soon, we're going to this series on uh, the basics of the faith, some of the things that are the basics of the faith. I think learning to, last week kind of spurred on even to do what this topic we're doing today, talking about what our mission would be. So what I'd do is take uh, all these topics, I would take one that he covers in his sermon, just to kind of wet your whistle and to challenge you, about this practical and inspiring section of the Bible, and I encourage you to go back and look at it, because we maybe we'll do a series through the Sermon on the Mount sometime. That would take quite a while, but um, it's a great thing. So, as, and here's what we're going to do. <laughs> we're going to go for the first topic that Jesus dealt with, and he went right for the jugular. I mean, he, went, he pulled no punches. He went right for it. In, Ma, in the beginning of Matthew, in chapter, at the beginning of his sermon, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, he's just barely into this sermon, just hardly. He's gone through the Beatitudes, and he's gone and said a few more things, but then he says this in Matthew chapter 5, 20, he says, for I tell you, and unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, who, by the way, were in the crowd, they were in the crowd, they were all there, he says, listen, everybody, unless... Your righteousness goes way beyond these guys. You will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Oh, could you imagine? What, you know, could you imagine the, you know, the people going, looking over, looking for a scribe, looking for a Pharisee, going, ooh, ouch. Because he was speaking right there, letting people, and people are thinking to themselves, how in the world? These guys are the best. How could I possibly exceed what they do? That's impossible. I guess I'm not in. I guess I'll never experience the kingdom of heaven. So he just goes right for it, right away. You see, what Jesus wants the crowd and us to know is that God is much more concerned about our heart than just simple, blind obedience. He doesn't want to just okay, this is what I'm told to do, I'll just do it. He's more concerned about our hearts now, talk about the basics of Christianity. When we, come to Jesus, when we come to Christ, we even say things like, I accepted Jesus into my heart. We say things like that because it's about a transformed heart. Oh, how we get so far away from just the simplicity of transforming our heart. See, the scribes and they were Pharisees, these, they were experts at keeping the law, yet Jesus says that our righteousness is not to be measured by how well we keep the law, but a completely, but a different criteria, and Jesus explains this criteria as he launches into his first topic, and maybe you may, many of you experienced this yesterday, we're going to talk about anger. This is the very first thing he hit. Jesus, went, went, he went right for it. This morning, we're going to look briefly at what it means to experience God's rule, God's reign, and God's presence in our anger, in the topic of anger, we're just going to jump in right where Jesus is at. This is, and I'm sure this is something that many of you probably don't deal with. You know, it's probably more for me than you. That's okay. I'll be speaking to myself. I'll go back and listen, and hopefully I'll learn something. This is something that just, I think, really hits a lot. By the way, I wanted to, if you are, if one of those guys that, one of those people that looks, listens to a sermon once in a while and goes, I want to know more. I want to dig deeper. This is probably one of the best books you could get out there on going through the Sermon on the Mount. It's called Studies in the Sermon on the Mount by Martin Lloyd-Jones. Fantastic resource. I use it when I preach through the Sermon on the Mount. I've used it for years. It's fantastic. So some of you, it's just, it's an easy read too. It's not like you're going, oh, heavy scholar. So, so if you want to read through the Sermon on the Mount and you want to really go along, actually I brought it back from someone in our congregation who's reading it. Um, so that's a, that's a great thing. So I just want to let you know about that. Um, it's interesting that Jesus starts off um, with anger. And I think reality is that he does this is because really anger turns us into people that we don't like, doesn't it? It turns us into people we do not want to be. And I'll prove it. Have you ever done or said anything out of anger and then later completely regretted it? Of course you have. We all have. We've all done the, I know, I, I don't even want to begin to think about how often I've done that. Benjamin Franklin, I love this. Benjamin Franklin once said, whatever's begun in anger ends in shame. Wow, so true. 19th century poet Ralph Waldo Emerson, he wrote this. Anger is an uncontrollable feeling that betrays what you are when you're not yourself. Anger is that powerful internal force that blows out the light of reason. Isn't that so true? You know, one of my biggest regrets as a father, I have four sons all in their 20s, and really one of my biggest regrets as a father is how often I reacted to my children in anger. You know, the truth is I was a yeller. Um, did that more than I wished I would have. Um, I hated who I was when I did it, I, it made my, and I hated what it, how it made my children feel. actually... My oldest, who's 29 soon here, he actually came to me right after college and he, um, we have a great relationship and we, we, he came to me and we went out for lunch and actually I saw him yesterday and we were just talking about this and he told me that he had finally, this is back when he was like 20, 21 years old, he said he had finally come to a place at, after college where he had realized how I had made him feel as a child because of my yelling That was painful to hear. Thankfully, it was from love from a son who loves Jesus, loves me, forgives me, but man, that was painful to hear. It wasn't something new. I knew it, but it was so difficult to hear knowing that that part of me had impacted his life as well as other things. So that was so hard to hear. So let's look at what Jesus has to say about anger. Let's look, let's look at the next verse, verse 21, chapter 5, verse 20, when he says, You have heard it said that, uh, though, that to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. <laughs> okay, whoa, <laughs> wait a second. I thought we were gonna talk about anger. I thought this was about anger. It is. This is exactly what is, Jesus is going to talk about, about anger, but he's going for the heart. He's going for the jugular. He's going for the heart of the matter here because Jesus is always concerned more about what is going on in our hearts because he knows that from our heart is what flows our thoughts and our actions. That's where they come from. you heard this verse Proverbs 4.23 says, Above all else, guard your heart for everything you do flows from it. Wow. Everything you do flows from what's going on in your heart. You can't fake your heart. This is what the religious leaders of Jesus' day, they were completely missing. They kept the letter of the law to a T, but their hearts were completely unaffected by it. If kingdom living means experiencing God's rule in his reign, and its presence in our lives, it makes sense that our hearts need to be radically impacted and radically affected here. The scribes and the Pharisees, I'm sure right here they're probably going, yeah, never murdered. Yeah, got that one. They're all proud of themselves that they had never murdered. To them, they had totally kept the law. No problem. But then Jesus kept going. Look at verse 22. But I say to you, that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. <laughs> Whoa. I love how Eugene Peterson puts it in, in his uh, message translation. He says, I'm telling you that anyone who is so much as angry with a brother or sister is guilty of murder. Carelessly calling a brother, idiot, and you, and you just might find yourself hauled into court. Yeah. Thoughtlessly yell, stupid, as a sister, at a sister, and you're on the brink of hellfire. The simple moral fact is that words kill. Wow. What a powerful, powerful message. How do we make sense of that? Because the really interesting thing is what Jesus is doing is he is equating being angry with someone with murder. When he does that, what he's saying is he's putting our murderous heart on the same level as actual murder. Now, as Christians, if you've been in a Christian a long time, okay, we know this. But do we really understand the impact of that? Do we really understand the impact that God sees it as actual murder and all the consequences that come along with that? Ouch! That, that is a big deal, such a big deal. The Pharisees were so focused on their outward actions. Now, Jesus is focusing on the motives, and he's focusing on the attitudes. You see, living with God's rule and his reign and his presence in our lives means that we first and foremost admit what is in our hearts. And really, often what's in our hearts, because of our, our sin nature and who we are, is really contrary to experiencing God's reign and his rule and his presence in our lives. Jeremiah, Jeremiah 17.9 says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Wow, that puts us in our place, doesn't it? That sheds light onto who we truly are. Not our identity, but just what we experience as sinful human beings. And what we can actually see in this, verse 20, in this verse, in verse 22, is that there really is, he kind of gives us kind of like a side note, but he really digs in a little deeper. If we look deeper at this verse, we can see that he really gives us three different types or three different degrees of anger. And see if you can relate to any three of these. First, the first one could be classified as silent rage. You know that one? That's the one where we silently seethe in anger. We don't do anything about it, so we're cool. But we're just seething with anger towards somebody in there. Second one is angry words. I mean, these are the things that we just spew out in anger. We never, we wish we could, do, you know, ever say something like, you wish you could just go, oh, 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 you know, and bring them all back in again? He's saying that one. The third one is angry criticism towards another person. When we criticize them in anger and just talk about them and label them and things like that. Can anybody relate to any of those? <laughs> I sure can. I can totally relate to those. What Jesus is trying to get across is that anger ultimately destroys. It destroys our ability to focus really on anything except our anger. Have you ever been really angry at somebody before? You just you're just you're just mad, and you're and you've tried to just. I say I'm I'm just going to move on. I'm going to move on with that day, and I'm going to focus on something else. How hard is that? It is so hard, isn't it? You say, I'm just going to put it aside. It is so hard. That's what anger does. It gets us off of anything but that. It's just so difficult. And the enemy knows that. This is the thing. We talked about spiritual warfare a couple weeks ago. The enemy knows that, and his goal is to keep us from experiencing anything but God's reign and his rule and his presence in our lives. And I got to tell you, anger is one of the most used tools in the enemy's arsenal. He uses a ton, but anger is one of the really most used in his arsenal. Listen to what James in his letter says. He says, my dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, And slow to become angry because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. So you remember that Jesus said that unless our righteousness goes beyond the religious leaders, we will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The truth is that anger will always, always derail kingdom living. Always. That's exactly what the enemy wants for us, too. Let me give you, I just want to give you one practical, I thought it'd be fun to give a practical illustration here, really about how um, anger can really negatively impact our lives. One of the things that I was reading about this week is anger, and, and this is something I've studied in the past also, anger really impacts our ability to have empathy, it has a huge impact on our empathy is, it's the ability to feel what another person is feeling. It's really this being able to truly understand and share another person's experiences and their emotions, okay? That's what empathy is. And really, empathy is at the heart of being able to connect with others at a deeper level. At a level that we want to be connected at the, with the most, empathy is so, so important there, now, some people are naturally more empathetic than others. Some of you are looking at your spouse or going, oh, yeah, there's empathy. You can read everybody, feels that they, you know, something's crying, they're crying. You know, they just feel it, you know. Others, it just, you know, people need to work more on developing their and em- being able to empathize with that. It's just kind of a personality thing a lot of times. But no matter, really, the ideal here is no matter the level of our natural empathy that we have, Holding on to anger will always diminish it. Always. And remember, it is vital for keeping strong relationships that we so desperately want. And it also impacts our ability to forgive. It is so hard to forgive people when we're holding on to anger. Literally almost impossible. You see, when we hold on to our anger towards someone, what we're literally doing is we're training our brains. In a sense, neurologically, we're training our brains to be less empathetic. We're creating neural pathways that are saying, this is the way I'm supposed to think. This is how I'm supposed to react to these kind of people. And it gets embedded in us, and it becomes stronger and stronger. That's what anger does. The problem is that anger can actually, for a lot of us, anger can be kind of like this nice security blanket. You know, when we hold on to it, we feel like, okay, at least I've got some control here. You know? I might not like what he or she did, but I can still be pissed off at him. Can I say that word? Sorry. I can still be very, 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 you know what? I don't like what they did. whatever. Oh, but at least, you know what? I can be angry. So it's this control. It's like this security blanket. I'm going to hang on to this because I need something out of this. They've taken away so much. I need something out of this. And so we naturally go to that. You see what Jesus is doing? He is going for a very, very basic heart issue. And this is just the beginning. <laughs> this is just the beginning of his sermon. Those people talk about getting a mouthful or a brainful of stuff. They were just inundated. This is a dangerous mindset to have. Dangerous mindset. I read a quote that said this week that says, holding on to anger is like grasping a hot coal with the intent of throwing it at someone else. You are the one that gets burned. So true, so true. Now notice that nowhere in these verses does Jesus doesn't make any distinction between justified anger and unjustified anger. We we could do a whole sermon on what it means to have righteous anger versus unrighteous anger. Jesus doesn't even go there with that. He he doesn't talk about that having that towards someone. See, because justified anger would be anger, really, it's the kind of stuff that would make anything that would make God angry. Okay? It's anything that's really brought about by evil. And we can think about tons of stuff like that in our world that are brought about by evil. And really, it's this justified because it's governed by our love for what is right. We love what is right, so we're angry at what is evil and wrong. That's justified. Okay? Unjustified or unrighteous anger would be anything really that's driven by pride. It's driven by our self-will. It's driven by condemnation. It shows up, <laughs> most often it shows up when we don't get our way or when things, when our will is being violated. For me, it's usually on the road. Um, that's, that's how those things work. But Jesus doesn't go there. He doesn't distinguish. I mean, you might be thinking, you might be thinking in your, at least in your mind, I feel like you have, I have the right to be angry. I have a right to be angry with someone. Sometimes you do. We feel like something, they have done something. I have a right to be angry. What they did or what they've done what they're doing, or what they said was malicious, it was hurtful, and it was wrong. So I have a right to be angry, but here's the thing. Being angry over what is brought on, brought about by sin and evil, that's fine. We should be angry at, at child slavery. We should, that should make us mad. Injustices in the world, that should make us angry. We see that even Jesus, even Jesus got really upset, didn't he? He saw what the money changers were doing in the temple, desecrating his father's house. That made him angry at the evil. He was angry at the evil. But there's a difference between anger that is directed at sin and evil and anger that is directed at a person. You get that? There is a difference there. I can look in someone's life and see what they're doing and go, that is evil, that is sinful, that is terrible, that is horrible, but still love that person. That is possible. As a believer, we can do that to separate that I didn't have time this week, but I wanted to look up um, one of those stories of like Corey Ten Boom or one of those gals. Corey Ten Boom, you know, people, you know, being she was in a, a concentration camp with her sister. Her sister died there in the concentration camp. Um, yet years and years later, Corey Ten Boom was noted for going back and wanting to express her forgiveness to guards of the concentration camp. That's amazing. Which, which, did she dismiss the evil? No way. She was angry at the evil, but she realized, as a follower of Jesus, she would be a murderer. Just, wow, just like them if she harbored anger in her heart. Wow, Jesus is getting to it. It's, this is a big thing. Okay, according to what Jesus is telling us is anger in our hearts towards someone is reprehensible in the sight of God. It is murder. Wow, Jesus is really, I, I, even as I was writing this and studying this and praying about this, I was even going to myself just going, wow, without the power of God and the power of the Holy Spirit, we're doomed <laughs> to our flesh and doomed to things like this. I just don't see how people, how can you not be angry at people, because it's our natural inclination to do that. I'm not putting people down for that, I, because I do it, but it's only the power of God. We'll talk about that toward the end here. Thankfully, in the next two verses, Jesus tells us really how we are to properly deal with our anger. But I got to warn you, it's not easy. It's not like he's going to say, here's your four steps to deal with anger. I hope you, you know, go have a good day. Go enjoy the beach. No, it doesn't. Look what he says. He says in verses 23 and 24. So if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. So what Jesus is essentially telling us here is before we do anything that resembles coming before God and worshiping him, we are to deal with our anger first, not later, but first. In other words, we are to keep short accounts, okay? Don't just sweep it under the rug. Don't just sweep your anger towards somebody under the rug. We're not to even, according to these verses, we're not even to harbor the thought of being angry, or feelings of being angry towards another person. Wow, this is impossible. This is impossible without the power of the Holy Spirit. It, it really is. Look at what Psalm sixty-six eighteen 18 says, if I had cherished sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. Wow. As a follower, a follower of Jesus, really, a follower of Jesus would never be able to say or have the right to say, I am so angry with him, I am so angry with her, we're just not on speaking terms. We can't. It's not possible to say I'm a follower of Jesus and I'm really truly trying to live out his reign and his rule and presence in my life, but I've got someone in my life that I'm angry with and, we're just not, and I'm not gonna deal with it. Incongruent. It's not possible. We gotta we got do some work we got some business to do. This is what what he's saying here. Because if that's the case, according to the scriptures, don't even bother coming to church and worshiping God. Don't even bother praying. Don't even bother coming before him. Because if I've harbored iniquity or sin in my heart and tried to gloss it over, God's not going to... That sounds so brutal, but it just goes to show how righteous and good and wonderful God is and how holy he is and the standard he he is asking us to live up to that we can't do on our own only in the power of Jesus. It's the only only way. You see, if we're going to experience this reign and rule and presence of Jesus in our our life and the presence of God in our lives, we need to take this issue and all the issues in the Sermon on the Mount as serious as God does. And I believe very much so, this is the kind of stuff that's gonna change a church, it's gonna change a city, it's gonna change a nation. But first, an individual. When we take these issues serious, not saying, oh, I just could never measure up, yep, <laughs> you're right, we can't. But God is asking us to step into faith and let Him change our hearts, mold our hearts so that people look at us and go, whoa something different going on here. Why why don't you hate her guts? Well, let me tell you. And they'll probably go, whoa, because it's so, so powerful. This is challenging. This is challenging stuff. I encourage you. Are you holding a grudge or anger towards somebody? I mean, we all have times when we're doing that. We all do. If so, my hope for this this morning is that this would be a challenge for us to deal with it and to deal with it now. Because we see in the last two verses here, and we finish up soon, the last two verses is why this is so vital, why it's so important that we follow through. Look at verses 25 and 26. They see this. Come to terms quickly with, with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you've paid the last penny. What Jesus is saying here is that holding on to anger will ultimately lead to our freedom being taken away from us. It will be taken away. We will not be ex- we will not be free at all to experience his rule and his reign and his presence in our lives because our hearts will become hard and we will be living truthfully in a state of rebellion. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26 and 27 says this, be angry. So, so it's not wrong to be angry, but do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Now, this word opportunity here in the Bible is, really means it's a place or a location. Or if you read the NIV Bible, it says it give him a foothold. Don't give him that foothold. Like, Any rock climbers here in the room? Anybody rock climb? All right, nobody, um, that's okay. When you rock, I used to take students rock climbing all the time, and um, when, when we'd go to these places, i have taken them to Yosemite and different places to rock climb. Inevitably, what I found, you always had to help people, adults and young people, when rock climbing, is that we always assume that when we get on a rock and get, start climbing, that I need to pull myself up to get to the next level always feeling, that's what I got to do. When the reality is, we got to look for the footholds, because which muscle is bigger, this one or this one? This one, for sure. So when you're rock climbing, you want to get a good foothold, because you've seen those videos of those guys, like spiders, when they're rocking, they're just jumping around. They're not doing it all with their arms. The majority of it's coming from their legs. They get a good foothold, they get a good placement with their foot, and they move forward from there that's exactly what anger allows the enemy to do in our lives according to the bible it allows the enemy to get a foothold or a place to begin doing some real dirty work cuz once he's in there it's like getting his foot in the door and we don't realize why did my life why is life going sideways why is everything why don't why is my bible so boring why is i hate chances are Maybe we've given him a foothold, in our using, allowing our anger just to fester or try to push it under the rug. Jesus is saying, no, deal with it. Don't give him a foothold. devil likes to use that. He likes to use that as a, as a place to entry into our life to do some damage. The freedom that comes from living, kingdom living, for many of us, begins with confronting our anger. Some of you in this room need to confront your anger. And we could go, if we kept on in the Sermon on the Mount, we could say, some of us in this room need to deal with our lust. Some of this room need to deal with it. I mean, it would just go on like crazy. And it would sound like it would be discouraging, but it's really encouraging because Jesus gives us the power and the strength and the ability to overcome in all of these areas. So how do we do it? How do we do How do we begin to do this, to deal with our anger? Well, first we begin by admitting our anger to ourselves and to God. When I was, um, one of the churches that I worked at has a real strong um, recovery program. And then when I was in my MFT program in uh, grad school, spent a lot of time around um, talking about AA. What a phenomenal ministry AA is, Alcoholics Anonymous. Just a great um, and then I remember one year, and actually, I've been through the 12 steps myself. Just I thought, man, these things look so practical and so good. I recommend every single person go through the 12 steps. I'm serious. It's, it's an amazing, based originally on biblical principles, and it's amazing what it does. So the first thing, the first step in AA is to admit that you're powerless over alcohol and that life has become unmanageable. First step. That's the very first one. You don't, oh, I got to all, do all this stuff. No, if you had to do all these other things, it'd be impossible. The first step, okay, you know what? This is taking control of me, and my life is a mess out of control. But you got to step into that first step. That's what's so important. So we start as believers by admitting that we are powerless over anger, that is negatively impacting our ability to experience God's rule in his reign and his presence in our lives. We just admit it. Just come clean and say, yes, this is what is happening. Second step in AA is coming to believe that a power greater than ourselves can restore us to sanity. Now, I know sometimes our higher power becomes the chair. We know what our higher power is. We know exactly what it is. But he's saying, but we need, the second step is believe. We need to believe that God truly can help us. In the, we need to trust that God can give us the strength and the power to deal with our anger as He desires us to do. It's gonna be different for different people. Some of you need to go get straight up into some anger management. <laughs> I don't know. Some of us just need to admit to a brother or sister, you know what? I've got some issues. I've been yelling at my kids more. And I know it's having a negative impact. Can we get together? Accountability, pray for me. Let's, what, can you help me with whatever? But we got to take some action. That's the next thing. We then by faith take the steps necessary to fully deal with our anger and how he leads us. And it's not going to be easy. One of the things I talked about up at uh, this retreat to the kids was we talked about the difference between the narrow gate and the wide gate that Jesus talks about that leads to the kingdom of heaven. And the interesting thing about the the narrow gate, he says that's the way to get to their kingdom. That's the way to get to the kingdom of heaven. But you know what? It's narrow. Fewer people find it, and it is hard. It's hard. It's not going to be easy. It's going to take sacrifice. It's going to take time. It's going to take effort. But Jesus is right there with it. The wide gate, it's full of promises of all sorts of things that are deceptive. It's full of, that'll give us fun. Yeah, it'll be great for a while. That's what dealing with our anger, and that's what Jesus is trying to get us to deal with your anger. It's not going to be easy, but that's okay. I am with you. There'll be others that are with you. I mean, there is tremendous freedom, you guys, in letting God work and do everything and anything possible to allow us to experience his reign and his rule and his presence in our life. But we've got to take some steps. We have to admit it. And you might, might be thinking, well, anger, that doesn't relate to me. Think of anything else in your life that you need to admit it, that it's there, and that you're powerless over it. And that only by releasing that to God and then doing something about it are you truly going to experience his reign and his rule and his presence in your life. Man, may we just really learn to trust in his guidance in this area. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for just how good you are. And Jesus, these are some tough words that you gave. Some tough, tough words. But I'm so thankful because God, it helps us to be people of character, but people that can truly experience you reigning and ruling in our life and your daily presence. So I pray for all of us that you would help us, specifically in today's topic, anger, but all the topics that are covered in the Sermon on the Mount, that we would see them as not rules to be kept, but as ways of becoming free to enjoy your goodness and your grace. That's your son's name we pray. Amen.